Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 14, we read, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them, and to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability, and immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord He also, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there, you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed, so you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents, for to everyone who has more will be given, and he who He will have abundance, but him who does not have even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In chapters 24 and 25, remember in the context of the second coming of Jesus... He gives a series of parables to illustrate his coming and the end of the age. We read about a fig tree in chapter 24, verse 32 through 35. We read about the days of Noah in chapter 24, verses 36 through 39. We spoke about the faithful and the evil servant in chapter 24, verses 40 through 51. We talked about ten virgins five wise and five foolish at the beginning of the chapter in verses 1 through 13. And now, the parable of the talents. In the parable of the ten virgins, we were instructed to, be, to wait and be wise 
in this, if the parable of the ten virgins draws our attention on waiting, the focus now seems to shift to working. If the virgins with oil represent people with saving faith, the parable of the talents brings to our attention what I would call serving faith and serving lives. One Bible teacher says, quote, together the two parables depict the balance of the believers looking forward to his coming with anticipation while living in preparedness for his coming through faithful service, unquote. Remember the function of a parable. It will in part conceal from those who aren't interested in the truth. It will in fact reveal to those who want to know the truth. So the challenge of teaching the parable, understanding the parable, is to make sure that we say exactly, hopefully, what the parable is saying. The challenge, of course, is to not say too much, but to clearly say what the parable is saying. So that's the challenge for me. How do I make sure I include all of the elements of the parable without sacrificing but how do I make sure that I don't read into the parable things that aren't there? Whatever else this parable means, it invites us to learn at least two things. Number one, while Jesus is away, the believer is called to do something. To work faithfully. To work diligently. The second is that while Jesus is away, the believer is to know something. So the believer is to work faithfully and diligently. The believer is to know something. And that something is that the believer's work is going to be extravagantly rewarded or severely judged. So once again, the parable is going to automatically conceal from some and reveal to others. And the parable, like the parables before it, is also going to serve as an illustration of opportunity. It was John Greenleaf Whittier who wrote, quote, For all sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these. It might have been opportunity. The greatest opportunity in human life is to know the Lord. It's to know him and glorify him with our life. It's to know the Lord, glorify the Lord, to know Jesus, to experience the forgiveness of sin, to experience the presence of his life in our life. That is, we become partakers through the gospel and through Jesus of eternal life. The tr greatest tragedy is to forsake Christ. It's to reject Jesus. It's to live a life dedicated to yourself. I suspect the parables of the faithful and evil servants in chapter 24, verses 45 through 51, the wise and the foolish virgins, chapter 25, verses 1 through 13, the profitable and the unprofitable servants 
were all warnings to the church prior to the rapture when Jesus returns for his bride, the church. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, where Paul, basically writing to the Thessalonians, says, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning the things, concerning those who have fallen asleep in Christ. It covers this mixed group of people that Matthew speaks about in chapter 13. The true and the false Christian. The wheat and the tares. Those who profess to know the Lord. And those who, who I have repeatedly referred to as the make-believer. And so in these parables, you'll note something. The master delays his coming in chapter 24, verse 48. In chapter 25, verse 5. And then again in verse 19. Delay, delay, delay. But the expectation is one of anticipation and preparation concerning the coming of the groom. Concerning the coming of the master. Concerning the coming of the king. And so these parables describe the attitude of the professing Christian, the confessing Christian, and then those who profess to know the Lord, but then who live their lives as if that isn't true. And so there's an exhortation of anticipation, preparation, exhortation for readiness for the coming of Jesus and so the overarching picture becomes a time of joy and reward for those who look for his coming and a time of shame and punishment for those who have made a concerted effort to pretend like it isn't true and so look what it says, our God-given opportunity in verses 4 and 5, when Jesus says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who calls his own servants and delivers his goods to them. In what way is the kingdom of heaven like a man traveling to a far country? Remember, the kingdom of, of heaven is the place where God rules and reigns. The man traveling to the far country clearly is the Lord Jesus himself. He is going to live. He is going to die. He is going to rise from the dead. He is going to ascend into heaven. He's going to go away. And note, he calls his own servants before he goes. He delivers his goods to them. He's going to impart to the apostles and the disciples instructions. He's going to give them what is necessary in order to accomplish his will. In verse 15, and to one he gave five talents, to the other two, to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. So he likens the kingdom of heaven to this man who travels to the far country. He calls his servants, note, and he gives his goods to them. Not their goods, his goods. The resources have their origin in the master who gives them, in the Lord who imparts them. The word translated talent is a reference in the ancient world to a weight or a measure. 
It's not money per se. It's not a specific coin, but rather it is the weight and the measure of a coin. And so in the ancient world, it could refer to gold. It could refer to silver. It could refer to copper. Implicit in the story is that the weight or the measure is a reference to something that is valuable, tangible, fungible, necessary. And so I suspect the value is less important than the fact that the Lord measures out a gift or a talent or a treasure. When a country had to pay tribute to Rome, it was measured in talents. For some, they have come to believe that it was the weight or the measure of the accumulation of a lifetime of living. And so, again, depending on the culture and depending on the society and depending on the circumstance, the way that I would think about it, it is the weight or the measure that you're able to negotiate with over the course of a lifetime. So, again, we might think of this talent as the weight or the measure or the giftedness provided by God to his creatures. And so the word Jesus used for his own servants translates the Greek word bond slaves. These are servants by choice. These are servants who have made the decision that they are going to work in service of the master. And so the master entrusts his property to his bond slaves with the expectation of increase. All the bond slaves are tasked with the same mission. The mission is, number one, to increase the master's holdings. And so that should cause each and every one of us to begin to think about this and say, do we share a collective mission as men and women who love the Lord, who are doulos, slaves by choice, People who are entrusted with the ministry. Our mission is to increase the master's holdings. And so the Bible says that God is the God of heaven and earth. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The Lord isn't interested in you giving him more stuff. Now, again, I thank God that we have a church and that we have chairs and that we have a place to meet and that there's stuff that we need in order to do church. But here, I'm going to suggest to you that the emphasis isn't getting more stuff for Jesus. The mission here is to increase the master's holdings. And so what does that mean for you and for me? I'm going to suggest to you that whatever this mission means... To increase the master's holdings for the Christian, it means to glorify God. It means to magnify him. It means to make him famous. It means to bring people to Jesus. It means to know and love the Lord and serve the Lord and use our talents and resources in order to expand his kingdom. We exist to increase the master's holdings. So in verse 15, we learn that each servant is given an amount. And you'll note, the amount isn't actually what's the most important thing. The most important thing is that the amount is given, look, according to his own ability. 
Not everyone has the same ability. Not everyone grows up in the same environment. Not everyone has the same opportunity. I may not have been born with a silver spoon in my mouth, but that doesn't mean I can't purchase a silver ladle and then dip it in the gravy bowl and give it to you. What am I saying? We all have a genetic signature that makes us different from one another. Some of us have gifts, artists, musicians, athletes. There was only one thing that kept me from being a famous mus musician. I have no talent whatsoever. <laughs> a lot of people don't let talent stand in their way. And so in the old English, that word talent has come down in our culture and our society and our language to make reference to something that's been imparted to you implicitly by God. So the Lord endows his gifts as he wills, according to his good pleasure. He knows each servant intimately and individually. Paul hints at this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, where he writes, But all these works, that one and the selfsame spirit, dividing to every man severally, that means exactly as he wills, God gives to each person, not according to what I want, but according to what he wants. If I got what I want, I would be as attractive as my wife. If I got what I want, I would have as much money as Bill Gates. If I had what I want, I would have the ability to preach like Chuck Swindoll. But I'm not getting what I want. I'm stuck with what I have. But here's the key. Each servant receives all the gifts he or she needs and all the gifts that he or she can use. Each person is given exactly what they need, exactly what they can use according to the master's pur pur uh, purposes. Each servant is given, and this is the key, an equal opportunity to be faithful. I'm going to repeat that. We each are given the exact same opportunity to be faithful with the gifts that have been entrusted with us. And if you don't believe that, then the parable is working what it's supposed to do. It's concealing from those who have no interest in the truth. We're judged on our faithfulness, not on the size of the gift, or the number of the gift, or the scope of the work. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 27, for the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels. Then he shall reward every man according to his works, Matthew 16, 27. Note, not according to the man's intention, not according to the person's promises, not in relationship to the excuses, Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, And if you call on the Father who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning. That means traveling here in fear. Does that mean terrified of God? No. It means with the reverential respect that should be accorded to God as you wake up 
every morning understanding that all that you have and all that you are and all that's been entrusted to you has been given to you by your Father through Christ the Lord. And we should take great comfort in the parable that the Lord calls these servants, read it for yourself, his own. He calls his own. We belong to the Lord. In the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 43, verse 1, it says, I have redeemed thee, or I have redeemed you. I've called you by your name. You are mine. If the Lord has redeemed you, if he has called you by name, you belong to him. The calling by name, I think, is in a sense of the reference when the Lord, by his Holy Spirit, begins to knock on the door of your heart. He invites you to consider and receive and embrace all that's been given to you in Jesus the Lord. And so, again, different people are given different capacities. Each servant is given the gift necessary to accomplish the master's plan. And that's the key. Different people are given different capabilities and are given different capacities in verse 15. We're given abilities by God. Jesus provides the opportunity to exercise those abilities. So the important thing is that we be found faithful, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, in a passage that I think I've repeated in every single parable. Where it says, moreover, it is required in stewards that they be found faithful. The most important thing isn't your gift. The most important thing is your faithfulness in the gift. And so here's our God-honoring response in verses 16 through 18. It says, Then he who received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who received two gained two more also. But he who received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. In the parable, two servants are faithful. They work. They double their talents. Both receive the same reward in verses 21 through 22. Like I said, some are given greater opportunities. Some are given a greater sphere of service. Some are given modest opportunities and modest service. So the issue isn't the greatness of the service, but rather the faithfulness to the service. Two servants immediately go to work. They're faithful and they're diligent. The work takes time. It takes energy. It takes labor. Two servants double the stewardship that's entrusted to them. And you'll note in the story, each servant's gifts bear fruit in proportion to the gift. The one given five talents bears more, 10 talents. The one given less, two talents, bears less, four talents. Both are equally successful in doubling what the master has given to them. Both are found faithful. In Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, we read, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, 
unmoved, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, unquote. We work for Christ. It's not in vain. It's going to accomplish exactly what God wants it to accomplish. We labor in prayer. We labor in giving. We labor in love. We labor in visitation. We labor in order to expand the master's kingdom. One servant did manage to exert some energy. He took enough time to find a place to dig a hole and bury his stewardship and then stick it in the ground. You know what all three have in common? They all did something. I'm going to suggest to you if the one who stuck his stewardship in the dirt had exerted the same amount of energy in order to honor his master the story would have turned out quite differently. He took his master's gift and he hid it. How did this servant spend his life? Is it too much to read into the parable? That the moment that he stuck his master's talent in the dirt, he made the decision that he was going to live his life on his own. He was going to live his life according to his own plans and purposes. He was going to not use the resources that were entrusted to him, but rather he was going to exercise his own business plan. The servant made a conscious decision, and this is the most important thing, to live his life absent his master's concerns without his master's resources. So let's ask another question. What do you suppose the servant did? We're not told. Text doesn't tell us. We have no idea what this person did instead. But here's what we know for sure. Whatever he was doing, his efforts were spent only on himself and his concerns. Do you remember another story where Jesus talked about two men, one who built his house on a rock and another on shifting sand? In Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, where he said, The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on the house. It did not fall because it was founded on a rock. Now everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand and the rain descended and the floods came, the winds blew, beat on the house, and it fell. And you'll remember in the, that story, it says, and great was its fall. So what can we glean from this passage and Matthew's passage? Let's think it through together. The faithful servants go immediately to work. They take advantage of God-given opportunities. They exercise faithfulness and diligence instead of laziness and unfaithfulness. We bear interest. We increase fruit. There's another pressing point. Whether you have a great talent or a little talent, 
whatever it is and however it manifests itself, the expectation is its use. And you might wickedly be thinking, but I've been given so little. Again, the issue isn't the little that you've been given. It's the expectation of energy and effort and exertion in the use of your talent. And so we see a God-given day of reckoning. Look what it says between verses 19 and 27 where it says, after a long time. I think in the story, Jesus is giving a hint to his disciples. After a long time, or what is going to seem like a very long time to them. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents besides them. Verse 21, his Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I've gained two more besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown. In other words, getting something from a place that you have no business being, gathering where you have not scattered seed, that is harvesting from fields and orchards that you never actually planted in. Verse 25, and I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there, you have what is yours. We could translate this, look. Take what belongs to you. Everything we started off with, we still have. What is this saying? That there's a day of reckoning. Again, you note the phrase in verse 19, after a long time. The coming of Jesus may seem like human standards to be a long time, but from Christ's perspective, it's a short time. This is something that we've talked about throughout these parables. As we've considered what Jesus is saying, how do we weigh expectation, preparation, anticipation with the reality of the world in which we're living in? You have grown up, and some of you, I can look out into the crowd. Some of you are young. Some of you are mature. Some of you are vintage. Doesn't that sound way better than old? Speaks of quality. But five years became 10 years, and 10 years became 20 years, and 20 years became 40 years, and 40 years became 50 years. And before you knew it, all that was entrusted to you and all that was given to you just simply comes to a halt. Jesus said, behold, I come quickly. And my reward is with me, he says in Revelation 3.11. 
In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, and again in verse 4 and chapter Chapter 3, verses 8 and 11, over and over again, the admonition is, I'm coming quickly, I'm coming quickly, I'm coming quickly. You'll note Jesus returns and he settles accounts, note, with them over and over and over again. In passage after passage after passage, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king. It's like a certain traveler. It's like a certain master. He has an account with his servants in Matthew 18.3. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came, settles accounts with them, Matthew 25.19. So then every one of us will give an account of himself to God, it says in Romans 14.12. It's appointed unto men once to die. And then the judgment, it says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. Unlike our friends who believe in reincarnation, you aren't born over and over and over again. The Bible's answer to reincarnation is a resurrection from the dead. Each and every person will come back to life. The Lord will return. The Lord will judge the living and the dead. The Lord is ready to do that right at this very moment. But he's patient. We've learned over and over again that he's not willing that any should perish. He desires all to come to repentance in 2 Peter 3, 9. So what is the reward for a, a job well done? In a way, it's like the real world in which you live. If you're really good at your job, what does your boss do? He gives you more work. You laugh, but it's true, isn't it? Because there's two kinds of people who work. Those who do a really good job. And those who do less than a good job. And you're going to discover something. When somebody does a great job, the boss is going to keep coming back to you saying, I need someone who will do a great job. And he keeps coming back and, and back. So there's more work. And note the experience of the two faithful servants. Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Lord, you delivered to me two talents. They both acknowledge God's gift. They both acknowledge God's grace. Lord, you gave this to me. You gifted me. You gave me your provision. You gave me your grace. Both servants express appreciation and thankfulness and privilege coupled with this incredible sense of responsibility. At least that's my impression. The servants have purpose and meaning and joy and privileges. There's nothing worse in the whole wide world than to sit and twiddle your thumbs wondering, what is it that I'm supposed to do? But the servant of God knows that you are to glorify him. You're to love him. You're to serve him. Second, so, so note what the master says. The master com commends them. <laughs> They're given great rewards. Rulership. You started off with a little, I'm going to give you a lot. What else? The joy of the Lord. I'm going to give you rulership and more joy. The master calls them good and faithful. And I'm going to suggest to you here, good means kind, 
gracious, moral, disciplined. For the person who wants to make a big deal and go, well, I thought the Bible says there's none good. No, not one. The Bible says exactly that. Because in relationship to God and in relationship to Jesus, there is none good. But why does this master call them good? And I'm going to suggest to you here it means kind and gracious and disciplined. Faithful means trusted in the things that have been provided. And so what is their reward? Like I said, rulership, the responsibility to rule over many things, to be in charge of many things, to be given a stewardship in the kingdom of heaven. Note what the parable says after the return of the Lord. Now again, are we reading too much into the parable if we suggest that there can't be stewardship and responsibility in the here and the now? I'm going to suggest to you that that's a possibility, but the greater possibility is that the source of reward comes when the master shows up in the kingdom. There, they receive a permanent possession and permanent joy. In the world in which you live, you're going to receive a temporary possession and perhaps a temporary joy. The presence and the perfection of the Lord and the presence of the Lord gives rise to this fullness of joy. Their fullness of joy is there because their master is there. Believers experience joy because of the presence of the Lord. We, joy isn't something that we get when we get to heaven. Joy is something that we can have in the here and the now. In the presence of perfection, there is joy unspeakable and full of glory. In the presence of perfection is the absence of sorrow, the absence of tears, the absence of pain. And so it should prompt each and every one of us to ask the question, well, what do we do now? Will you acknowledge that your special gifts, talents, treasures that have been entrusted to you come from the Lord? It's simple. It's to do the most simple and basic thing. Admit it. Just admit that that's true. And now embark on a plan to be faithful and diligent with what has been given to you for the glory of God, for the kingdom of God, and for the for the cause of Christ. Why? So you can be bold in the day of judgment. This is the day of judgment. This is the day of reckoning. How can they be bold in the day of judgment? And that's my point. And that's my purpose. It's to make you bold and wise in the day of judgment. How do you become bold and wise in the day of judgment? The wise servant is able to show how much work is done for God given the precious gifts that were entrusted to him. That means boldness. James 3.13, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. In this parable, you'll note the master accepts both the person, good, good servant, and the labor, faithful servant. Enter in good and faithful. The third servant accuses his master of being a hard man, reaping where he had not sown and gathering where he had not scattered. The third servant confessed that he lived in fear in verse 25. 
In verse 26, it says, but his Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. A couple of things. The master refers to the servant as wicked and lazy. He repeats the accusation made against him. So what you're saying is that I reap where I have not sown. I gather where I have not scattered. But I do want to point something out in the parable that you may have missed. He doesn't plead guilty to this accusation. I'm going to suggest to you as he repeats the accusation, he isn't suggesting that it's true. He calls the servant wicked. Why? Because he had a a job to do and he didn't do it. That's the very definition of wickedness. It's knowing what God wants and then saying, I'm not going to do what God wants. That's it in a nutshell. It's knowing what God wants and then deciding not to do what God wants. The master, without admitting guilt, basically is in effect saying, if what you say is true about me, it should have motivated you to work harder, to please me. In verse 27, so it says, so you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. Again, the challenge, the challenge, the challenge. To not read into the parable more than is there, but to say at least what is there. When I was rereading this, where where he says, so you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. Is he, in effect, saying, if you're not going to do what I've called you to do, could you at least have given the provision to someone else who will do what I want done? You don't want to pray? Find someone who will pray. You don't want to participate in evangelism? Find someone who will do it. You don't want to do this or that? Find someone who will do it. So that at least, even though you wind up not doing exactly what God wants you to do, find someone who will do it. Does God plead guilty to the charge of being unfair and unjust? Let me be clear here. God is never, no never, ever, ever unfair or unjust. Here's the day of reward. Look what it says quickly. So take the talent from him. Give it to him who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. This parable repeats a principle that's found throughout the New Testament. You know what it says in Luke 12, 48. To whom much is given. That's exactly right. To whom much is given, much is required. Warren Wiersbe writes, if we fail to use what he gives us, we'll lose it to another, unquote. In the parable, Jesus takes the talent from the wicked and the lazy servant, and he gives it to the good and the faithful servant with ten talents. Some people might read into this some sort of celestial redistribution of wealth. I don't think that that's what it's saying. I think what it's saying is that the faithful and the responsible will be given more. 
the faithful and the responsible will be given more and the unfaithful and the disobedient will lose what little that they have. Could it be that the unprofitable servant gave himself permission to say, you know what, I suspect that my master may or may not come back. I believe that at some point he's going to come back. I better have exactly what he gave me. But guess what? By giving himself permission to hide what the master gave him, he had to live a life on his own, with his own resources. And in verse 30, it says, look what it says, and cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What happens to the unfaithful servant? The punishment for the unfaithful servant is stripping and separating what was given to him is taken away and his participation now becomes separation who is this person is this a saved person is this a person who made a profession but then he winds up making accusation and excuse what was the servant's excuse for his lazy wicked unfaithful behavior. The servant accused the master of being hard, demanding, strict, exacting, stern, maybe even unsympathetic. This lazy and wicked servant says, the Lord wants too much from me. He wants too much. He demands too much. The world exists, after all, to be enjoyed. The servant could live his life in service to the master, or he could live it in service to himself. He fears not just using the talent, but losing the talent. He feared that he might lose what God had given to him. So he hides it. And he would not use it to build and grow the master's resources and the kingdom. This servant, I'm going to suggest to you, not only has a wrong view of his master, but it becomes a type and a picture of people who have a phony view about God. Some people view God as the hard guy in the sky, making impossible demands of perfection on his weak creatures. Some people believe that God has given unfairly to those who deserve less. Lord, how in the world could you possibly have given that person so much money and given me so little? How could you have given them so much talent and me so little? The accusation is an accusation against the master himself. What's more important is it's not true. The servant accuses the master of being dishonest, unjust, undependable. Just like people accused God of being uncaring, distant, unjust, undependable. But it's not true. Some people will see themselves in light of God's word. Or they'll judge God in the darkness of their own perversion and their own limited perception. Whatever else this parable is saying, it's saying this. You won't judge God on the day of judgment. He'll judge you. For the person 
who you've ever heard say, when I get to heaven, I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. You should just duck, hide, run away. And if they ask you what, what you're doing, you're going, I just can't be this close to lightning and judgment. <laughs> so what does the master say? He's wicked and lazy. He's wicked because he insists on doing what he wants instead of doing what the master wants. The man with one talent is not, I'm going to suggest to you, an illustration of a carnal Christian or a conflicted Christian. I'm going to suggest to you that this is the make-believer. He's not only unfaithful, he's without faith, without saving faith. No Christian justified by faith, declared righteous by God in Christ, is going to be cast into outer darkness. Here's a letter from a girl to her pastor. Dear pastor, how does God know the good people from the bad people? Do you tell him? Or does he read about it in the newspapers? Sincerely, Marie, age nine. It could just as easily have read, how does God know the good people from the bad people? Do you tell him? Or is, does he post it online? Every church is good, bad, believer and unbeliever, and make-believer. The Bible calls them wheat and tares. On the outside, they look alike. On the inside, they're different. It's not my job to tell God what's wrong with you. Because God knows the truth. He knows the truth about your heart. I don't. I can't see inside of you but God can see inside of you only God knows the heart so what is this place of outer darkness this is the place where there's weeping regret gnashing of teeth it's outer darkness what can we conclude it's a place that's absent light it's a place where there's tears and regret. It's a place because there's tears and regret, there is no joy and God isn't present. This is a place where this person who wanted to be stripped of any and all responsibility in this life gets exactly what he or she wants in the next life. You don't want light, you won't have it. You don't want responsibility, then guess what? You will eventually wind up in a place where you won't have to be responsible for anything. There is a place where a person is responsible for nothing. Forever. So the question, did you see yourself in the parable? Did you dare ask the question, what does this have to do with me? If you're a believer, can you point to fruit in your life? Are you growing in Christ? Are you giving in love? Have you led a single person to Jesus? Do you enjoy the benefits of being in a fellowship where God is worshipped, where Jesus is honored, where the Spirit moves, where the Bible is taught? But you yourself have never responded to the gospel. 
Have you experienced fruitful service to the Lord Jesus? There was a little poem I came across. It reads this way. There was a very cautious man who never laughed or played. He never risked. He never tried. He never sang or prayed. And when one day he passed away, his insurance was denied. For since he never really lived, they claimed he never died. You're here. You're here. You're here. You've been entrusted with stewardship and a singular mission to expand the master's resources and the master's kingdom and the master's holdings. Oddly enough, that's not more stuff. It's more people, heart, who've been changed because of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, the challenge to say at least what the parable says. To not try to say more than the parable is really saying. Lord, whether I'm innocent or guilty of the charges of reading into it something that's not there or refusing to read what is exactly there, Lord, I pray, I pray, I pray, I pray that you will have your way in each heart. Lord, I pray that you will reveal to each person what they need to know and that you'll conceal from each person what they've already given up trying to know. But just in case, just in case, Lord, I pray that for one person, their heart would be open. That they would seriously evaluate their life in light of who you are and what you want and what will happen. Lord, we know that you said that the Holy Spirit would come and he would convict the world of sin because we're sinners. Of righteousness, you would show us a righteous standard in the person of Jesus and of judgment because a judgment will come and unless we understand sin, we'll never understand grace and unless we understand the righteous character of Jesus, we will never receive that grace. And so, Lord, we pray that we would have a proper understanding of what it means to know you and love you and serve you. And then a willingness to do exactly that. Lord, we pray that we will not just anticipate your coming, prepare for your coming, but that we will work in such a way that you'll find us doing exactly what you've called us to do at the moment you show up. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.